to run up against a barrier that is not monetary, but but who you are, which you can't change, be it you know your race, your color, people with disabilities, and and the access issues. You know, I just don't think that should be the barrier. You know, and it that's the kind of stuff that is so psychologically damaging to folks. Mm. Hey everyone, welcome to Design Of. I'm Wills Francis. And I'm Justin Ahrens. And this is from the studio of Rule 29. And today, we're talking to Kim Nevels, the Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity Center Director at the Chicago Department of Housing and Urban Development. Justin, you and her were classmates back in the day, is that right? Yeah, we both went to uh, undergrad at Illinois Wesleyan University. I woo. I woo. Yeah. Titans? Tommy the, Titans. the Titan? Tommy the Titan, yeah. Weren't, weren't we enemies? I think you guys would say we were enemies, but I mean, from our perspective, over at Wheat College Thunder. Great mascot, by the way. Yeah, thank you. And so who was a better student back in those days? Oh, Kim, for sure, was had to be a better student. I yeah. mean, she ended up going to law school, and, you know, I was the, had a Bachelor of Fine Arts in, in Art and Design, and let's just leave it at that. We'll talk about Kim, that in yeah, a little bit. Yeah. We traveled to the Chicago Loop to learn more about her role, and the way she encounters and fights injustice in Chicago and around the Midwest. I grew up in a small town, Champaign, Illinois. Went from high school until college. And I, you know, you're a nosy little kid. And I remember overhearing some conversation. I have no idea what the context was, but um, it was when black folks moved to a neighborhood, the property values go down. Your kid, pay no, no attention to it. It's just something that you hear. But it's something I heard that stuck with me. That exact phrase. That yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. And then I read for the first time in high school, Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun. Hmm. And I loved it. I still love it. It's my favorite play. I've seen it on TV, on Broadway. I mean, I love this play. So um, that play has stuck with me. So go to law school and you're doing the thing and you're job hopping and trying to figure out where you're gonna go and where you're gonna be. And I saw a job posting for an equal opportunity specialist. And what is that? Yeah. And uh, did a little bit more research and figured out that, oh, at Housing and Urban Development, the equal opportunity specialists are investigators of civil rights claims in Mm. housing. And so took a leap of faith um, and took this federal government job. And then in learning my job and the laws and all that, I realized that A Raisin in the Sun is a play about fair housing. Mm. And it is based on Lorraine Hansberry's actual experience, her father's actual experience in purchasing a home on the south side of Chicago and the neighbors um, actually petitioning to enforce uh, racially discriminating zoning. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And that he, and he eventually, he won his case in the Supreme Court on a technicality that they didn't like interview or get petitions from like the majority of the neighbors to enforce the racially restrictive code. Um, Otherwise, it could have been. Or they, or they probably would have enforced it. Enforced it. Hmm. Um, and 
literally it was like almost one of those full circle moments where it's like, oh, the stuff that I was interested in as a kid, here I am as an adult getting to do this work. Hmm. And so, yeah, so that's kind of a long story of how, but I, it's kind of almost by chance that I ended up doing what I do. So I started 16 years ago, um, and so the thing with federal government is that there's with administrations changing, there's always going to be a hiring freeze, and so um, there's always a push to try and get new staff on if you can before the administration, before the hiring freeze. So I started right before uh, Bush, and I've been here 16 years, and so as an investigator, um, which was probably my most fun part, uh, yeah, you're, you're out in the field interviewing people and um, so how does it tell me how that process works so uh, is it an email or or, or some sort of form comes started? in sure yeah yeah so um, we take cases people come to us they walk in they still use snail mail but most of them come over the internet and so across the country if you um, go to hud.gov there's a button that says to file a housing discrimination complaint and it will send you to the proper office across the country. And so most of the cases come in by um, through the internet, and then we have to look at all of the cases that come in to decide if we've got jurisdiction. If there's jurisdiction, then it gets sent to an investigator. And um, yeah, as an investigator, it's your responsibility to verify jurisdiction. You've got to interview the claimant, you've got to interview the respondent, any witnesses, um, you've got to get documentation if you can to see if um, you can prove a case. And so the thing with all of the investigators, neutral parties, we don't get to take a side, we are not activists. Mm -hmm. um, it's more along the lines of under the law, can you prove um, discrimination? And so is it, this may be an ignorant question, no, um, so uh, forgive me if it is, but what is a is there a, a typical type of claim or are the, are there things that are fairly consistent that you see? Um, okay, so federal government can take cases based on race, color, national origin, sex, religion, disability, um, and familial status. And so the most of most of our cases come in are based on disability. Um, number two is based on race or national origin. After that, it's familial status. You know, Wills, one of the many things that I love about Kim is she really challenges us to face our preconceived notions about the city of Chicago, specifically regarding the incredible landscape of the city and how we make judgments about its people. Where have you gone when you look and explore the city? And when you think about, at least in Chicago, when you think about different sides of the city, the south side, the west side, what do you think? And um, how does that come about? But not to, you know, say it just it's just Chicago, because it's not. It's yeah. all. When you say what do you think, do you mean what, what do they what do they picture? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so or even what words come to mind when I say South Side or West Side, you know? And is it, do you associate it with a safe place? Hmm. 
Yeah, you know? And who lives there when you think about it? Who do you think lives there? Okay, so the Federal Fair Housing Act was the last major civil rights act passed. So Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. Um, Literally, Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, and on April 11th, LBJ signed the legislation. So, the last major Civil Rights Act passed. And it's 2017, and this is such an intractable problem that we are still working on. Mm. Um, <clears throat> that historically, I can look at Bronzeville and tell you the story of Bronzeville and that this is a story that they are still working on. And I think that housing, and because housing and education go hand in hand, because for so many of us, where you live is where you go to school, and both of these are stories of segregation, an intractable segregation, and for, in many cases, it is such a lack of political will, hmm. um, because litigation only takes you so far. A um, lack of political will? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? So, just because of, so, you think about housing, and for, if you own a home, um, it's probably where your wealth is tied up. Right. And, and the bulk of your money mm-hmm. is tied up in your house, which is, it's both an economic and an emotional issue, right? Mm-hmm. So then, like I was saying, I heard this, overheard this statement as a kid, as far as black folks coming to the neighborhood and bringing down property values, right? right? And so then you've got all of this tied up together and then you've got the politics of it. And so, you know, most people, the thought is anyone can live here, anyone who can afford to can live here, right? Right. But then you have access and access to opportunity and where affordable housing is built and how it gets built and all that, all that stuff. Um, and so how property is developed, you've got both developers, it's, you've got to get building permits, which is politics, right. um, and all this stuff. And then you've got people who, for example, say you've got the most kind-hearted politician in the world who's like, yes, we're building affordable housing in this neighborhood, it's going to be mixed income, you're going to have both people with vouchers, you're going to have um, both, you know, income limits, people without vouchers, but who are lower income, who can afford to live here, and market rate. And I find it interesting, the pushback in so many neighborhoods, um, in regards to just the proposal of those kinds of buildings and that when the communities push back, um, even if there is the political will, often it won't get built. And I can look at things, it, it, like I said, this has happened, it's not we are not unique in Illinois. It's happened all over the country. And when you look at some of the cases, um, the litigation can be decades long before anything is built. Um, and then when it is built, there's been, your property values haven't dropped. Um, there is no more crime in this neighborhood. Um, 
so yeah, so for me, I think that, that when we get, when I hear all of these things, I, I just often, it's so much more emotional than it is actual data-driven right. pieces. I can, I can point to studies that show that, you know, black people coming to the neighborhood does not drop your property value. You know, um, a person with a voucher coming to your neighborhood does not drop the property value. Right. Um, it, 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 to, for those things to happen, it's more than those folks coming to a neighborhood. Right. It's, it's a multitude of factors. And so, yeah. So political will, yeah, just because it, it politics made the segregation, right? Mm -hmm. um, federal policy, redlining, redlining by the federal government, banks, insurance companies, um, that's how this all even came to be, right? And so then, I guess, the redlining, all that stuff ended like mm, late 60s, early 70s. And then to just say that, okay, now it's, now go forth. You right. know, and, and and figure it out. It's not going to happen organically. It's going it, it's to it's going to take politics. Mm -hmm. One of Kim's biggest takeaways for us was to simply be aware that unjust housing practices are not a thing in the past. They can be happening in our very own neighborhood. That's so true. And the reality is, whether you live in the city or the suburbs or an apartment or a condo or a house, this type of discrimination can happen anywhere at any time. Yeah, on a civil rights level, um, in regards to housing discrimination, um, yeah, my role is to educate people because I didn't learn about this in school. Um, you know, I still talk to people who have no idea about fair housing and what it is why it even came into being and why it is necessary and yes it is 2017 and yes you still need civil rights investigators and the enforcement of civil rights um and so yeah you know we and and for the most part like i said we can't with the cases that we get um not all of them are going to be reasonable cause um but on a civil rights level to have a place to come to be able to tell your story and to be heard and to be taken seriously, even if I can't write, your, write that particular wrong, you know, you've had an opportunity to tell your story and to be heard and to be taken seriously, which for some people, you know, that, that's huge. Yeah. You know? And to have, like, the ear being the federal government. Exactly. It's helpful <laughs> as well, I'm sure. Exactly. And so how do you define for housing? Equal opportunity. So the economics of it are one thing, but to try and rent an apartment, for example, um, and to run up against a barrier that is not monetary, but, but who you are, which you can't change, be it you know, your race, your color, people with disabilities, and, and the access issues, you know, I just don't think that should be the barrier you know and it that's the kind of stuff that is so psychologically damaging to folks mm -hmm. um you know to to actually you know be able to financially you have the ability to rent a place or to purchase a home 
and to run up against that barrier um, that is essential to who you are. Yeah, you know, I just, I, I honestly just think it's, it's such an injustice, and it, yeah, it gets my back up every single time. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, as you can tell, I'm still yeah. passionate about it. Back during her undergrad career at Illinois Wesleyan University, go Titans, this is where Kim got her first taste for fighting injustice in the world. So Professor Bushnell taught all the, like, he was history, and taught all the civil rights classes. No, and, I, didn't, I didn't take that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so I took his civil rights classes, and here it is, senior year, and where are you going and what are you doing? And of course, at that point, I was a history major with a English minor and a women's studies minor with parents who were like, yeah, what are you going <laughs> to do with the rest of your life? And... Um, yeah, I've, one of my parents' friends was a professor at U of I Law, and I went ahead, had lunch with him, and decided to, to take the LSAT and put my applications in and, you know, put off adulting for a minute and went to law school. Looking at this history of civil rights and you know, it's such it's such a cliche. Thurgood Marshall was on the Supreme Court, and in mm -hmm. all of that, that was uh, definitely yeah. Looking and researching and, and doing all that, there was. I think I had this this vague idea of being a civil rights lawyer, but nobody knows what that means. Mm. And I'm I'm I grew up in Central Illinois, so it's not like there's an example. Right. <laughs> you know, or a path to follow. Um, but so yeah, I don't think that I had, I had a vague idea of wanting to work in civil rights, but not having any idea of what that would look like, hmm. or what that actually would be doing. Um, but, you know, I did know there was the law. But um, I always, I love the law, you know, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of times, the law is just your place of last resort. Um, it's got its limitations. Sure. But um, I do know that having that law degree, when I applied to be an investigator, was I'm sure, you know, the thing that put me over. That's great. Over the top. So, yeah. <clears throat> how does the current budget crisis affect HUD? And sure. What you guys do? Do you feel that? Um. So yeah, so we'll see. I think the current budget and September 30th, um, the proposed budget doesn't affect my office, the Office of Fair Housing, but it does, the proposal zeroes out the budget for community development block grants. And uh, that's money that goes to states and cities and um, does stuff for people like home repairs and um, funds different programs that are critical. And if that money goes away, um, while we live in Illinois, the state is not going to be able to fill that gap. And so yeah, so I, I mean, I think you said it's a proposed budget. It hasn't come through. Um, we'll see, but yes. it. Yeah, it absolutely will have an impact. 
How much is the on communities? How much does the state? Um, obviously, you know Illinois now being ranked as a almost as good as a junk bond right now. Um, how does that affect you? Or I, I mean, is HUD just totally federal, so you have no state responsibility? Okay. Right. So um, as far as my office is concerned. Um, we, there's the state gets a grant from HUD for investigating cases, and that is a memorandum of understanding um, that the Illinois law is substantially equivalent to the federal law, and so they get money um, for the, for the investigations they've done of housing discrimination complaints. But outside of that, um, not my that's not in my wheelhouse. Your family. Yeah. How do you, how do you approach educating your kids, for example, about the world and and what you see in your in your job? Hmm. Well, I think it's interesting. So I know. Um, so my daughter just finished third grade, and there was a section in I guess it must have been social studies, where it said that segregation ended with Dr. King. Wow. Which. Uh, made me laugh <laughs> and I was like I don't know that that's what the teacher taught but I know that that's what she had gleaned from 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 the topic um, and it was just interesting to to ask her we live on the south side we live in South Shore our neighborhood is I think 98% African-American um, you know and I asked her as we were driving home what did she see hmm. um, you know and, and who do we live amongst the majority and um, she was like well yeah we live we live with black folks we live in a black neighborhood I was like that's what segregation is and so I was like it hasn't ended I was like but, but we're all working yeah hopefully we're working to make it better um, and I did but also knowing that um, that discussion of race um, it has become really interesting uh, in this uh, political environment mm. And the kids are very much aware of what the grown-ups are saying. Mm. Um, and so for me, a lot of it is just trying to be truthful, but also hopeful. Wills, I just have to say, how inspiring are Kim and her husband? They're a true power couple. And one of the things that I love about them, and she's going to talk about this a little bit more in a second, is they really try to instill into their children a strong sense of justice, equality, particularly in the context of where they live in Chicago. I did not know your husband's a lawyer, too. Yes, we met in law school. Oh, that's awesome. So what, how, how does, what does he practice? He doesn't. He is in not-for-profit. He's been executive director of a not-for-profit. What yeah. can you tell us the nonprofit? Um, so it's been Illinois African American Coalition for Prevention, and he's done violence prevention and healthcare work for like the last ten years. Wow. Yeah. You guys are doing so. some pretty amazing stuff together. I try. Yeah, you know how. But so yeah, that yeah, that's as far as the kids are concerned. Um, it's more along the lines of yes, as a black person. Uh, it's such a cliche in the black community, but you will have to work twice as hard to get half as far, and it's not fair. But it is. And so our expectations of you as kids right now is, and your job is to go to school and do well, you know? Yeah. And uh, hopefully they will grow up to be good people, you know? I want them to decide to 
mean, not that college is much of a choice for them, but you know, <laughs> that they'll go to college and, and pick a path at least, you know, where they can go home and feel good at night. For all of Kim's optimism, she's also a realist about the challenges of being black in America, particularly in relation to the recent accounts of police violence targeting minorities. And as wills of many of us experience, with the rise of camera phones and social media, these realities are coming to us almost daily. So, and coming from the perspective of a black person, I think it's interesting that it's like, to a certain extent, it's like, oh look, we're not crazy. We told you. Um, that That's what, to me, I, it, like it's, yes, this is not what I would wish for, but to a certain extent, even with video and, and they're not, being justice, people are bearing witness, mm-hmm. and and actually understanding that you know this isn't new. It's it's been happening. What is new is everyone having access to a camera mm-hmm. and everyone being able to put it out on the internet for the world to see. Mm. And so, to me, that's that's also. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but it's also, hey, now you're, we're not the only one bearing witness. Yeah. How do you feel about the city? city of Chicago? Yeah. Ah, I love the city. Um, but gosh, she's such a cruel mistress. Um, <laughs> I think it's just interesting because, like, especially the city, so much of what happens is like block by block, and I don't know, maybe in certain areas of the city there's this illusion of safety, um, but but the gun violence is happening all over the city, um, and it's happening on the north side, it's happening in the Gulf, on the Gold Coast, um, and yes, it's frightening, but I'll be honest, um, the shooting in my neighborhood was a police shooting, you know, and the police shooting an unarmed kid. So, mm. I mean, when did that happen? That was it'll be a year ago this July. So yeah. So let me ask this question. <clears throat> you know, people outside of Chicago. You know they, you know where I'm going with this. They Google mm-hmm. and they hear about the gun violence and and. And all this sort of thing, and my relatives, are you okay? Right, right. It's just like you're going to Chicago this weekend. <coughs> you know, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. And um, and you said something interesting earlier, where there's this maybe illusion of safety or that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, having been, been able to travel a little bit, I, Chicago is still one of the most beautiful cities in the world. But yeah. but when people ask you that, you know, do you feel that Chicago's unsafe? No. I feel safe, um, and I, I and I, I've gotten the question a lot, especially when people are like, "You live where? You live on the South Side?" And you know, I'm like, I walk my dogs every day. <laughs> you know how um, my kids play outside every day. You know how we we the our neighbors are within blocks. We walk over there, and the kids bike over there. They're too little to let them do it alone, but. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I find it interesting um, that the portrayal of the South Side by the media is so not what most 
most of us what our day-to-day is. And that's not to say that um, there aren't pockets of danger. But I, again, I just am like, that is a story of disinvestment and a lack of hope. And for decades, you know, it didn't just happen, you know. And so, but for the most part, no, I am no more afraid living in Chicago and enjoy all parts of the city. Most people don't pay attention too much to how many people are actually affected by gun violence. Um, and so, yes, you can talk to, and I would say, you know, because this is my community, you know, those of us who live on the South Side, who are black, you know, could you talk to us and probably we're more apt to say we know people and have been affected by gun violence? Yes. But I would also say, you know, on a, on a day-to-day level, um, are we cowering in fear? in our south side neighborhoods? No. You know, but I think that, and again, that's why I say that, that neighborhoods are really interesting and the story of neighborhoods are really interesting because um, the violence in Chicago has so many pieces to it. Mm-hmm. And that to, to figure out a way to lessen the violence, yeah somebody with a higher pay grade than me. (laughs) Kim and her husband are really passionate about doing significant, lasting work in the city of Chicago. And towards the end of 2016, that work got them an invite to meet an old colleague at his most recent job. Uh, Yeah, so I guess as the Obama administration was ending, they were bringing um, different delegations to the White House. And so we got to go as part of the Illinois group. So, so yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. But you all got to take your cameras in. And yeah. so ours were all put in a paper bag. <laughs> well, and I was like, well, wait, what happens if I don't get to have a selfie? Can you share a little bit about, like, how did you, because f- I could talk about, I was like almost weeping when I walked in because it was like, yeah. So amazing. How it's did you like feel? It's like an awe-inspiring experience. Um, because you're walking in, well, first of all, to walk through security, and you're like, oh, this is for real, for yeah. real. Yeah. Um, to go through... Three different layers. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. The levels of security, and, and, and at this point, and then, and then to give up your phone, and it's like, this is for real. Um, but to, yeah, I, I can't even, I don't even know what the rooms are called. I'd have to look it up. But, um, yeah, to be in that place where, like, oh gosh, all Hamilton on you, where history is made, you know? And, and um, to just even stand there, and it's intimidating because the rooms are huge mm-hmm. and the doors are huge, and it's just a big space. And then to, stand in line and to get to shake the hand of the president and um my was husband was there too she was not there that evening um but my husband used to work with um the president and so to see 
him actually greet my husband and oh. give a hug. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and here I am. How amazing is that? I, I, wow. yeah, I'm, I'm Kim. And he was like, you didn't say anything. I was like, I honestly couldn't. <laughs> I had nothing to say. I, I was like, yes, one of the few times in my life I'm rendered speechless. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. And I was rendered speechless by the whole experience. So one last question. When you were there, the, the National African American Museum had just mm, opened. Did you yes, have a chance to go? Yes, we got to go, go yes. Yeah. So I was on, it was almost like me getting Hamilton tickets. <laughs> <laughs> that um, I knew we were going to D.C. and they had just, they were releasing some more timed tickets for the dates that we were going to be there. And so awesome. I was on it like just like I was for Hamilton. Bam, <laughs> bam, you know, and so yeah, we were able to go, oh, have you been yet? So I went that weekend okay. that we missed each other. And, okay. Uh, what they, I did not know the ticket scenario. Yeah. But what was really great is they let you stay in line. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, what they did is they'd get the max tickets. Yeah. Which were six, I think. Yeah. And then they would come with two. Yeah. And so I just waited. I waited for two hours and it was worth okay. every second. Yeah. 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 What an amazing museum hmm. I mean um, I actually need like two days yes because <laughs> I think I made it we made it through the entire not even the entire but a good portion of the flavor exhibit and then you know they've got the beautiful um, I guess it's a reflecting fountain the water um, and then like a whole a second floor or third floor maybe of course I had to look at the, the housing section yeah. um, <laughs> of which Chicago's in there and um, yeah and the sports stuff but yeah. I was like I didn't you know how you don't get to take it all in and what an amazing piece of architecture yeah it was really like great. to have the light come in and just gorgeous yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah, I think about it. I was like, so the, that's the, there's two places I can't wait for. The, I need my son to get just a little bit older before we go to um, uh, the the National Civil the Lorraine Motel National Civil Rights Museum oh. in Memphis because that one blew my mind. It's great. It's an experience, and to go back and take the kids to D.C. for that one because it's it's they're both really neat experiences. I just have one more question. Like, what? I'm sure you come up against opposition, whether that's on Facebook or conversations or whatever. What is like the one thing that, like, if people people could just understand this thing, or if I could send this message out into the world and it would fall on ready ears, mm -hmm. what do you think that would be? So what I find interesting, and I guess I don't have one thing. Um, <laughs> but I find the, the hoarding of resources uh -huh. to be such so interesting I, I personally I just don't understand that there's where people are coming from that there's not enough for all of us um, I don't understand I think it's almost the what people what I Get, and not from my friends, <laughs> thank goodness. Um, but like when I have the when I forget not to read comments, <laughs> um, yeah. And like almost this lack of understanding or or 
yeah, this, the, this denial of humanity from people who are different yeah. from you. And as if, you know, people who are different don't deserve safe spaces, um, don't deserve good schools for their kids, a grocery store. Um, yeah, these are those things that are always interesting to me, and I, I, I think of it more as a hoarding of resources. Um, why is there not enough? Right. Um, and I've traveled, you've traveled, you know, I've been to places where people literally don't have enough, have nothing, you know, and looking at America and this country, we have enough. Um, and so that's the part that always makes me stop and go, and, and because I think it honestly, it's not that it just affects people of color people with disabilities, um, that actually affects all of us, you know? So say your kid wants to be a teacher and, you know, needs affordable housing because teachers aren't making um, enough to live downtown in the city of Chicago so that she can just go to work, you know? Those are those, those things that, that it, it ends up actually affecting all of us. You know, I mean, in all honesty, for those of us who are able-bodied, some of that could be incredibly temporary. Right. You know, an accident happens and, you know, your life can be changed like that. I mean, I've seen that happen. And um, so, yeah, so some of it is just that how, especially for, you know, a nation that purports itself to be built on Christian values. Um, yeah. Why, what are, what are people hoarding these resources for? You know? Yeah. And, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's just, for me, that's the part that's always interesting, that I, it's almost like, well, why aren't, why isn't everyone deserving of a quality education? You know, a safe neighborhood, you know, that you, that the kids can bike around without fear, walk around without fear, um, you know, have a park to go to. Um, so, yeah. Kim, thank you so much for being a part of the show and wish you all the best as you press on in creating a more just, equal and inclusive world. If you'd like to learn more about Kim's work on the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, you can visit hud.gov, hud.gov. We'll also post some links related to Kim's work in the show notes of this episode. Design of is brought to you by the Studio of Rule 29. Our sponsor for this episode is LifeWater International, a clean water organization working to end the global water and sanitation crisis. To learn more about LifeWater's work, visit lifewater.org. We want to thank Sleeping at Last for providing the soundtrack to Design of. Check out Sleeping Last on Spotify, Apple Music, or at sleepingatlast.com. We'd also like to thank Steve Wick, our audio engineer. You know, Justin, Steve is like that calming feeling of coming back home after a long day. So true. You can follow Design Of on Twitter at Design Of Podcast. And if you want to look us up online at designofpodcast.com. We're also on soundcloud and itunes and please give us a rating if you like our show it really helps thanks everyone we have a few more episodes coming your way before the end of the year look for them soon 